Welcome back to the Rise of the Young podcast. Today we have Dylan Jacob on the show. He is the founder of Brewmate. And before we get into it, I'm going to be giving you some insight into who he is. So overall, Dylan Jacob has built a better beer cozy into a $36 million business. To get an idea of just how good of a mousetrap Jacob built, consider his sales numbers since starting his company in 2016 in Denver. That year, he did $270,000, but bear in mind that was in two months because he launched in November. In 2017, Brewmate did $2.1 million. In 2018, it did almost $20 million. And last year, Brewmate brought in $36 million. Even better, Jacob, 25 years old, owns the company 100%, although he's getting ready to raise $10 million in venture capital as part of a planned global expansion. Overall, I am very excited to have Dylan Jacob on the show today. We have a lot of mutual friends, and he is the absolute beast. So make sure you subscribe to the episode, check out Brewmate, and screenshot this podcast, post it on Instagram, tag Dylan Jacob, tag myself, And other than that, enjoy the show. All right, what's going on, everyone? Casey Adams here. Welcome back to the Rise of the Young podcast. Today, we have the founder of Brewmate, Mr. Dylan Jacob. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Hey, what's up, Casey? Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. So, So first off, I've been following you for quite some time. Love your product. We have a lot of mutual friends. But real quick, I just want to kick it off and say I absolutely loved the recent Forbes article, the article that came out on Brewmate. And for those who don't know what it is, can you tell us about what Brewmate is and why you started it? Yeah. So in in a short glimpse of like what we do as a company and what our ethos is. Um, so if you look at the typical drinkware that's on the market, so like Contigo, your typical like coffee mugs, tumblers, things like that. Um, when I came into this market, I just noticed that no one was really focusing on what mattered. And that was um, like ultimately creating a better drinking experience for adult beverages. So um, our goal at Brewmate is to create drinkware that's designed to uh, like keep your adult beverages at the perfect temperature from the time you open them until you finish them. Um, and ultimately provide a better drinking experience to what's currently out there. So we do uh, like insulated wine tumblers, growlers, um, insulated beer koozies, things like that, that are all designed to keep your alcohol perfectly chilled. Where did this idea come from? <laughs> Dude, I hate warm beer. So okay. I, uh, like as soon as I turned 21, I had this phase, not really a phase, but I started getting into craft beer naturally. Um, and the, there was a local brewery in Indiana, that's where I grew up. Um, and all the beer that they served was in 16 ounce cans. So like I was drinking out of these tall 16 ounce cans and craft beer wasn't cheap. Like it's like $5 a can. And I'm like a broke, you know, 21 year old at this point. So I, like, we were at Indy 500, and, uh, you know, Indy 500 every year is hosted in Indy, obviously, uh, and we were at Carb Day, and, like, my beer, every time I'd open it up, I'd get halfway through, and it was warm, and I was like, there's got to be a better way to do this. Like, these regular foam beer koozies that people hand out at, like, weddings and events and stuff like that just don't do anything. They're designed to keep your hands warm, but not actually to keep your beer cold, and so those are disconnect. Um, and so I just started doing research. I was like, is anyone creating a product to, to create, you know, keep beer cold, uh, in a can? And the answer was no. So that's kind of where I stepped up and, and created Brewmate. Very cool. Um, 
I referenced this article, and I want to start off by just saying the headline. It says, Dylan Jacob built a better beer cozy into a $36 million business. And why I want to say that is because I'd love for you to take us through the process of, you know, when you started it to how it's scaled over the years up to this point. Yeah. I mean, so do you want like full background on like how I even got into entrepreneurship in the first place or do you? We'll get there. I just want to give the people some like instant business where yeah. we're at now type of knowledge. <laughs> God, I mean, so I'm obviously like, you know, I'm friends with a lot of entrepreneurs, you're friends with a lot of entrepreneurs. And I think that you find like anyone that has a really high growth company, they have the same factors uh, that ultimately like you have to have these factors in order to have high growth company. And it's like right product fit at the right time. And so for us, it was like uh, people were starting to get educated on like insulated stainless steel drinkware. And it was like one of the fastest growing sectors of the drinkware industry, but no one had identified that no one was doing anything for alcohol. And so that was when we stepped in, it was like perfect timing. We, yep. we didn't have to really educate the consumer. Um, and we came in with a product that people were yearning for and they couldn't find. And so like, I would like to say that I'm like a genius and all this stuff, but like at the end of the day, I think it's more about just like, when you're innovating a product, you really have to ask yourself, you know, is the market big enough? And, and also has anyone else done this before? Like if you're just launching a different product and you're coming into it, like, Oh, we have a different brand ethos or we're donating to this charity or whatever. Like your market cap's going to be limited because you're only going to get so many people to resonate. But if you come in with a product that no one's ever seen before, like I actually, I think one of the best things that I'm good at is like creating products that people don't know they need yet. And okay. that's where like you see the gold is like, if you can look at a market and go, I think not, not, I think, but like, I know people will buy this and then you create it and then your bet pays off like in dividends. Um, and that was kind of what happened here. It was like, I made a bet. I was like, I can't be the only one that hates warm beer. And, yep. uh, and so I came in with this idea and it's just taken off. That's so sick, man. So, so take us back now. When did your entrepreneurial journey start? Where are you, where are you from? What is your upbringing? Like give us the, you know, Dylan Jacobs, origin story <laughs> yeah so if you listen to d's podcast detour he did a little shout out uh during uh i think it was like end of the year top hustlers or whatever and uh he said it perfectly like i'm from bumblefuck indiana like is that a real place i was like no but it describes where i grew up so i grew up uh literally in in a town called whiteland indiana it's uh 30 minutes south of Indianapolis. Um, it's a farm town, literally, like people drive tractors to school and shit. And, and so like, I just had a lot of downtime. And in my younger years, I spent a lot of that downtime getting in trouble. Um, I was actually uh, expelled from school twice in eighth wow. grade. Um, I was in juvenile detention for two months. I was on house arrest for six. Um, I, I went through a phase where like, I was putting all of my energy into things that were ultimately bringing me down. and. Um, so skip back a little bit even before that, like my parents split up when I was in fourth grade. Um, I grew up really poor. My mom was a single mom supporting three kids on a minimum wage job. Um, you know, I spent a lot of my time trying to figure out ways to make money and um, just buy things to help like alleviate the burden from her. Yep. And, and that was kind of what like sparked, not even, I, I don't even call entrepreneurship at that point. It was more just like hustles, right? Like, I found any way I could to make another $20, another hundred dollars. And, and that really stuck with me. Like it taught me that like you can go out and create value and ultimately make money from it. Um, 
and so like going into middle school like I, you know ultimately i was i was selling things that i shouldn't have been and um you know i, I made a, a switch like that that two months of juvenile detention really was like two months of solid meditation for me to kind of reflect on like where i had been where i was headed um, and kind of make a shift in my life and so when i went into high school like it was the same thing i wanted to save up for my uh for a car like all the typical things that like a 14 15 year old kid yeah. thinking about yep. and um so my grandpa when he moved to the u.s in the 1950s uh from the middle east he started a, a small tv repair shop and so he created or he, he would fix like tvs vcrs um you know things that you've probably never even seen it's quite like <laughs> yeah. old dinosaur shit yeah, yeah. um but but he created a really solid living out of like he supported uh you know my my dad and um my three uncles and uh you know from that like i grew up working with him like uh you know i was in the shop fixing tv stuff like that and so i knew there was a market for that but like that was phasing out like flat screen tvs were coming in phones were coming and stuff like that and uh so, so freshman year i like kind of did the same thing except for phones ipads um, so in 2009 and 10, you couldn't go into a repair shop or uh, like an Apple store and get your phone fixed. Um, so if it was broken, you would just sell it for parts basically, or there was uh, like mail-in services where you could mail in your phones. And so uh, I would just buy up all those broken phones, iPads, whatever, and I would fix them myself and then just resell them. Um, and so that was like my hustle from like freshman year to sophomore year. I probably made like 20 or $30,000 from it. Um, which like, you know, looking back, it's not a lot of money, but at that age, it was like, crazy money. Um, and, and so that was like what the ultimately led into my first business, like sophomore year. Um, again, this was a hustle. Like I was just buying up every broken phone. I put off Craigslist, fixing it, flipping it. And then all these repair shops started popping up and I was like, shit, like they're taking my business. Like I can't find broken phones anymore. That market kind of dried up. So I went in and made friends with the owners. And like found out they're all getting their parts off eBay and stuff. And like it, most people aren't super familiar with this market, but like for cell phone repair parts specifically, you have like A, B, C grade parts. And like your A grade parts typically are like pristine OEM. Um, your B grade parts are going to have um, like dust under the screen, dead pixels, things like that. And that's what they were selling to their customers. And I was like, you can't be giving that to your customers. Like I have access to A grade parts. Let me supply you. And so my first company was called GB Supply Company. And so by senior year, we were working with over 100 repair shops around the U.S., um, supplying them with LCD screens, batteries, flex cables, uh, pretty much anything they needed for cell phone repair. And um, I think the biggest thing from that was, like, I had gone through all of high school still not even thinking that I was capable of being an entrepreneur. Um, even when I was running my company, it was like, I was preparing to go to college to be an engineer. Um, you know, I got accepted to Purdue. I had a full ride to Purdue uh, their, for their engineering program. I had an internship and it was like, I still looked at my business, even though like we were rolling in, you know, we had a ton of different retail stores that were working with us. We were making over $200,000 a year. Like it was a great business, but I still looked at it as a hustle. It was like, this is a hustle, right? Like, I'm not going to sustain this for 10 years. This isn't going to be a real company. Like this is just a side hustle. And, and I grew up poor. So like naturally I never want to be poor again. So I was like, I need to get like a good paying job and like a 401k and like all these things. And, 
and what I found was like, I ended up going to school for a semester and I was running this out of my dorm room. And we ended up getting a contract with a company called CPR Wireless. So they uh, are a large franchise, uh, over hundred stores um, to do cell phone repair. And we doubled our size overnight. Wow. So I dropped out of college. I was like, I'm not going back. Like I'm going to take a semester off and just see where this goes. And then four months later, I sold that company for a hundred thousand dollars. And I was like, okay, like I've been spending all of my time trying to find that, that stabilization in my life, trying to find something that, that would like just pay the bills and get by when I had been running something that was really valuable, um, valuable enough for someone to ultimately like buy us and integrate us into their supply chain. Um, And I just had a blind spot because like my, my like risk tolerance was still really low and I didn't believe in myself as an entrepreneur. And so like after that sale was made, like things really shifted, you know, that was when I ultimately decided like, this is actually what I enjoy. This is what I want to do and pursue for the rest of my life. Um, and my, you know, over time, like I had a lot of different, uh, businesses and things like that kind of before roommate too. Um, and every business that I had, like my risk tolerance got a little bit higher. My confidence in myself got a little bit higher and then leading in the roommate, um, you know, I'm going to skip over the second business. Like it's going to take 10 minutes just to talk about that. And like, long story short, I, I bought a house is a terrible idea. I spent a year remodeling it. Um, and the process started another company and then, um, roommate was like actually a side hustle to like, I was running another company and roommate was started as a side hustle. Like okay. I just, I, I didn't know this for the, just for reference. Well, you yeah. like have the side hustle of roommate. Say that again. What year did you start it as like a side hustle? Uh, 2016. Okay. So like beginning of 2000. So I, I sold my first company in 2014. I spent about a year remodeling this house and started my second company in the process in 2015. And then, um, I was running that company for about a year before like roommate kind of came on as, as a side, like I always call these hustles, but like, it wasn't a business. Like it was an idea for a product, which like is not a business. So at that point it was just a product roommate the name did not exist like the brand like our goal is the brand didn't exist none of those things were formed um and i didn't know anything about the insulated drinkware market like but as soon as i came up with this idea like i proved the concept and then from there i was like i'm going to be the best at this and that was when things really changed so very cool I want to just jump, jump into roommate because it's, it's fascinating. I, um, and I want people to, I'll make sure to link this article because I think it's fascinating um, what they touch on, but it says you own a hundred percent of the company and you're potentially looking to raise some venture capital. I would love to touch on that because someone like myself, I'm interested in that world as raising capital, but also eventually, you know, investing in early startups. Mm-hmm. So what does that process look like with roommate right now? And why are you deciding now to raise funds and not early on? Yeah, I mean, so for a few reasons, like when I first started the company, um, you know, I, I sold everything like, okay, so just kind of give you an idea of timeline. Like I came up with the concept for this January, 2016. We did our full scale launch November, 2016, 100% pre-order. So like I didn't really invest that much into the company, like customers were paying for this. Um, and we delivered over $300,000 in orders before Christmas, 2016. Wow. Um, that was 14 days in sales. Like we launched day after black Friday, 2016 and sold out in less than two weeks and delivered before Christmas. So like that was when the concept for Brume was proven. And from there, like the first year I wasn't focused on raising, like I just, 
to be honest, I'm a control freak. Yeah. Um, I didn't want to bring someone in early on because I just knew that like, if I didn't prove the concept first, I'd be giving up a large portion of the company. And ultimately like if it did turn out, if it turned out to be something successful, then like I would own barely anything in the company. And then it also says something about me as an entrepreneur, right? Like if I am not comfortable enough, like investing everything that I have into my own concept, then like, why should someone else? Right. And so that was like, I sold my other company. I sold my house. I sold everything I had. I moved into a small apartment. I invested everything in a roommate that I had. And I was like, let me prove this concept first. And, and then it was like, we just skyrocketed. Like our first year, uh, we did $2 million in sales. The yet next year after that, we did 20 million. And at this point, like I still hadn't taken any money. And I was like, we still have a crazy growth trajectory and like I've been able to make it work. Uh, you know, we really crafty with the way that we use bank financing and credit cards and things like that. Um, and so ultimately it was just like, I wanted to see how far I could get. It was kind of like a personal like challenge for me. I was like, I want to see how big I can scale this without taking money. Um, and you also have to like weigh that with is not taking money hurting our growth. Right. And so that was where I kind of drew the line was like, if I started to notice that, that like we actually need extra capital. And at this point, like my personal goals don't really matter. Like I need to be thinking about the company. Yeah. Then that's when I'll start thinking about it. And so we started to feel the growing pains last year. Like um, we were struggling to get increases on our lines of credit. You know, we were growing at a pace, which like I couldn't really keep up with financially. Um, and so we were running out of stock and like paying extra money for air shipping and things like that. And so, I was like, okay, the company at this point, I mean, we're on track to do over $40 million in sales. I was like, I feel like this is a good time to really bring on investors. And not from so much a VC standpoint, because like VC is usually pretty early stage. Yeah. Um, like they would have came in at like the $2 million mark and hoped that we we're going to turn into a $200 million company, yeah. right? Whereas like we're actually raising with like growth equity. So it's more um, like private equity side of things, um, you know, probably 15 to 20% equity stake in the company. Very cool. Um, so they still have like skin in the game, but they don't have majority share. So like I get to still like steer the ship as CEO. Yep. They still have say in certain things financially, but they act as bumpers for the business. And like, I, it's not really about the money. Like we're, we're continuing to get lines of credit and things like that. It's actually more about like guidance. And so um, when I first started raising, like all the questions that I got were like, why do you need money? I was like, I don't, I actually need guidance. So um, the way that like I've, we've been talking with all the investors and like looking at potential partners is not, not so much from a financial standpoint, but like, can they add value to the company? I'm a young CEO. This is my third company, but this is my biggest by far. And I have a lot to learn. Like, and I don't want to make like, even though obviously as entrepreneurs, like we're pretty risk averse. Like I, you know, I take risk. Right. But at the same time, I do not want to look back in 10 years and be like my pride or ego got in the way of me taking advice. Um, and cause I just thought I was right or whatever. And ultimately that was like what led to my demise. And so from an investment standpoint, like if you can sell off enough of your company to get like a growth equity firm, um, in our case that has experience with like a CPG company experience with like building hundred million dollar plus brands of like what goes into that team structure, things like that, like that's way more valuable than the cash. Cause for me, it's like, we're headed there and I want to make sure that we get there as efficiently as possible. And like with with the least amount of mistakes in yeah. between, you totally. know? I love that. 
what's been the, in terms of leadership and, you know, company culture up to this point, going from, you know, starting it as a side hustle to doing 2 million, 20 million, 36 million, obviously like yourself as CEO, like you've had the great leadership to bring it up to this point now where you can go raise 10, $15 million. So what would you say to, you know, a young entrepreneur who's starting a company now regarding leadership and team building? What advice would you give them? Yeah, I mean, I think leadership, like, you always hear the term natural born leader. And like, I think that as long as you believe in your vision, and people can really feel that like your employees feel that you believe in the vision, and you hire the right people, like they'll believe in the vision too, right? Um, if, if your employees get the idea that you're just in this for the money, or like, you're not actually passionate about what you're doing, like, why did why should they be passionate, right? Like, think of any corporate company, you go to work, you're, you're sitting at a cubicle, you're kind of just crunching numbers, doing whatever. There's no company culture. Like you're, you're just like a cog, you're a part of a cog, right? Um, whereas like in our company, like everyone owns their role. Like I, I really give people um, the free range to be able to like be the best at their craft. Like I hire people ultimately that like, so let me step back. Yeah. When I was first hiring, like I actually wrote down a list because I think this is really helpful. I wrote down a list of like everything that I was good at and everything that I thought I was bad at, like as a leader uh, in marketing, customer service, like whatever it was. Because in the beginning, like I'm doing everything right. So it's like, what do I enjoy? What do I not enjoy? What am I good at? What am I not good at? And so that was kind of how I hired was like we were hiring out positions that were like taking things off my plate, allowing me to focus on what's good for me or what I'm good at, um, what I enjoy. And when I was hiring people, I wasn't just hiring people that were looking for like a pay raise or they were just unhappy at their jobs. They're looking for something new. I was like, our whole team is made up of like really scrappy hustlers that like reminded my, like reminded me of myself when I'm interviewing these people, like, like, do they have a fire? Do they have a passion? You know, did they DM me on Instagram rather than just like filling out a resume or did they like get crafty with the way they reached out to me? Like, did they actually go above and beyond? Um, and like what I've been able to do through all of that was like ultimately hire people that are crazy about the brand. Um, and and they believe in what we're doing. So like, there's not a whole lot of, you know, all I have to do is continue to lead the brand and like follow my own vision and naturally like everyone else in our company follows. Um, so I, I feel like as long as you have a clear brand vision and like you actually believe in it, like the rest will just kind of follow. Every company is different. Every team structure is going to be different. Um, I mean, it's really, it's really based. What's been some of the, you know, like the biggest growing pains as you went from, you know, idea side hustle to 2 million to 20 million to now just throughout that journey, what's been some challenges or, you know, growing pains that you had to go through that you'd want to pass on to someone that may go through them later. Yeah. It's uh, financially, obviously, uh, I think, the two biggest hurdles for most companies, honestly, when you're a consumer brand and especially direct to consumer are going to be fulfillment and, and finances. Like you're trying to figure out as long as you have a good idea and product, like it's not going to be too hard to find customers. What most people struggle with is like keeping up with demand, um, making sure that things are kept in stock, making sure that orders are going out the door uh, in a timely manner. And so like our biggest hurdle from day one was actually fulfillment. Um, so, you know, we, we were like growing like crazy, right? Which naturally means like we need a bigger warehouse to store our products. And you have to balance it between like, I don't want to be paying for warehouse space that we're not using because then we're just burning money. And I want to make sure that we have a warehouse that's big enough 
um, to sustain our growth for the year. And so, you know, when we were a, a $2 million company, I was like, oh, we're probably going to be $10 million company next year with our growth, right? And then we went to 20. And it was like, we grew out of three warehouses in one year. Wow. And like trying to keep up with that was a nightmare because then it shifted my focus from what I'm good at, which is like product innovation and design and marketing <laughs> to like, how are we getting orders out the door and trying yeah. to hire like warehouse managers and stuff like that. And so um, like I outsourced that. Uh, we actually use a company called Shipmunks. Actually, one of my best friends, uh, his name is Jan Bednar, super cool guy, but he started a company called Shipmunk and they specialize uh, in, in working with like e-commerce companies uh, to do their, their fulfillment. And we started working with him in May, 2017. Um, and like, it allowed us to grow exponentially because I didn't have to worry about warehouse space. We were only paying for the warehouse space that we used. Yep. Um, I didn't have to worry about like seasonal hires or like we had a new launch and our orders doubled overnight, like trying to find people to fill those orders. Um, and so it really like allowed me to focus on what I'm good at. Uh, so that was like the first one. And then financially, like kind of the same thing. I mean, it, it's this, you're always chasing growth, but at the same time you have to make sure that you can sustain it. And like your money is not just going towards, uh, towards inventory, right? Like you're, you're paying for employee costs and like all of your other overhead that you have. And so that you're really reliant if you don't have investment on being profitable and using that money and like rolling it back into the company for growth. Um, and so we were really limited like that, like looking back hindsight is like 2020, but I do wish that we would have taken investment maybe a little bit earlier just so I didn't have to worry about like, I've spent a lot of the last year, uh, just like getting lines of credit and doing company audits and, and like trying to find all these different ways to pay for inventory where I feel like it probably would have, wouldn't have been bad just to, to work with an investor early on um, or a little bit earlier on to, to really like free up my time to continue to focus on what I'm good at. And like, it's kind of a reoccurring trend throughout this call and like something that I talk about a lot, but it's just like doubling down on what you're good at and outsourcing what you're not. Yeah. Um, and yeah. So delegating, love it. When you dropped out of college, was that something that affected family dynamic? And how did that look? Cause I know I just did a podcast with this kid earlier and he was like, yeah, man, I might drop out of college. I might do this. And I'd love to ask you, you know, full ride prestigious school. What was that transition like? And how did your family respond? Uh, so, so my family, like on my dad's side, specifically, uh, my uncle's like the VP of citizens energy in Indiana. Um, he, he went to Purdue, his two sons went to Purdue, big Purdue family, a lot of, uh, you know, engineers in our family, my grandpa, again, like he came from the Middle East with nothing. And so education was really, really important to him. My other uncle is a doctor, you know, my dad was an auditor. Um, but like education is really important. And so my parents, like they obviously got to see all the crazy stuff that I did from like the time that I was in fourth grade through like senior year, you know, like they understood what I was doing. Like they knew that I wasn't just blowing smoke, but you know, from an outsider's perspective, like the rest of my family, they thought I was insane. Like when I left school, you know, obviously this wasn't something I just did overnight. Like we were on Christmas break and I sat down with my family, like specifically like my mom, dad, sisters and brothers, like people that I'm close with and just told them like, Hey, this is what I'm thinking about doing. Like, do you think I'm insane? And they were like, no, like, you're this is something that you're clearly good at like just take a semester and you know if it doesn't work out it doesn't work out and if it does like that's awesome yeah. um but the rest of my family like literally until i made forbes 30 under 30 list like i think that they still thought that i was just like they had no idea what i was doing yeah and, like, they just thought i was like a college dropout loser and 
and then like the dynamic really shifted at that point they're like oh wow and now it's like everyone actually understands it kind of but there was definitely like a two-year period where like I was not depressed but it was just like this weird dynamic I went from being like congratulated at every family occasion like oh congrats on making it a Purdue and this and that and then I left to do something that I thought was more exciting and then they were like you're crazy what are you doing you're throwing your life away and it was like why can't they see what I see you know and so it's been nice to like see it come full circle where they finally get it but there was definitely a period where like I ultimately just had to believe in myself and like just kind of say okay like I'll prove it to them right like they don't they think that what I'm doing is stupid. I'll prove that it's not. Yeah. Speaking of um, Forbes 30 and 30, for the people that may not know what exactly that is and requirements and just overall just what it is, can you give us some insight into Forbes 30 and 30? Yeah. So Forbes 30 and 30 really celebrates and highlights entrepreneurs that are under 30 years old in a bunch of different sectors um, that are ultimately like what they consider best in class. Um, so there's like healthcare, uh, there's retail and e-commerce, which is what I was in. There's technology, um, musicians, whatever. So they really like highlight the top 30 uh, in their own category every single year. Um, so it's a really cool way just to like kind of see who the shakers and movers are um, that are under 30. And so uh, I met a lot of my really good friends actually through that. Um, it was an amazing networking platform for me because like, again, I grew up in the middle of nowhere in Indiana. Like there are no like cpg like entrepreneurs in indiana it's all really tech um and so all of the good friends that i have now i mean that's how i met d like some of my good friends taylor and parker they're with like beat socks in la i don't know if you know them yeah i know taylor so taylor parker and then also jan with shipmunk we were all on the same list um and the first time we met was in israel we like got a house there for the global summit um for for forbes and all stayed together and like we became really close but like i met d through taylor so like a lot of the connections that i have now um all stemmed back to like forbes because it allows you to connect with like like-minded younger uh people that ultimately like are, are going after the same things as you and i would have never had access to that without it so it was really really cool let's say and you kind of just answered my next question i was gonna ask like how did you get involved like for example we found a lot of the same people we're friends with a lot of the same people number one now when did you as a personal brand start utilizing social media obviously i've been following you and you know, we've been back and forth on social and that's how we had this podcast. But as a CEO and founder, when did that become important to you and how have you been building a personal brand as you're building a company? Yeah. I mean, so the personal brand, like for me really wasn't that important. Um, in like year one and two, like I didn't utilize social media very much. Um, I used to be really into social media actually. Like, uh, back when I was in, uh, like high school, I had, two or three Twitter accounts that had, you know, hundreds of thousands of followers. And like, I would trade and buy like Instagram accounts and Twitter accounts with like hundreds of thousands of followers and use them to like shout each other out. And this was back when like, if you had a big page and you posted at the right time, you could gain 30,000 followers on the explore page. Like it was easy. It was fun. It was like a little, again, a side hustle. Like I just had a bunch of different stuff that I did to make money. And I was in a bunch of like kick pages where like, you know, I, we would just like message each other and buy and sell pages and whatever. And but like my personal Instagram was never like a thing. Like I had just a bunch of crazy pages, like dogs, you know, travel pages, like whatever it was. Um, and so like my focus for the first couple of years was really the company. And then like, as I really shaped as an entrepreneur and like figured out what I wanted to do in the future, that was when personal branding became important to me. Um, and so people always ask like, what is your end goal with Brumit? What do you want to do? And 
if the answer with Brumid is really like, I'm still passionate about it. I want to grow this thing to the moon. But after Brumid's over, like whether that's an exit or like I kind of step back or whatever it is, I want to work with other entrepreneurs hands-on, whether it's in a consulting role or kind of like from an investment standpoint, um, where like I can take younger entrepreneurs who have maybe $100,000, $200,000 companies specifically for consumer brands. Um, and they just kind of need guidance, like helping yeah. them not make the same mistakes I did, helping them with fulfillment, helping them with marketing, like helping them with supply chain, helping them with getting early on financing when like banks won't typically finance you, like navigating those hurdles. And like in order to do that, like people have to know that like I'm not blowing smoke. And so if I'm just like this random guy that like, you know, on Instagram, I have a thousand followers and I never post about what I do or anything about the company. Like, and then two years from now I sell it. People are going to be like, who are you? Like, where did you come from? Yeah. And so it's really been about like getting people to understand, like kind of letting them in on the journey of like what it's like to run this size company and like not your typical like run of the mill entrepreneur that's like how I built a $20 million company in a week, you yeah. know, and like not just telling people everything they want to hear, but really focusing on like what it's really like to be an entrepreneur and like get down and dirty and ultimately like what it takes to kind of get to where I've been, which ultimately is like 10 years of really, really hard work and three companies to teach me the things that I needed. Um, and like take all that experience and ultimately like help the younger generation um, kind of not make the same mistakes I did, but also be able to do what I like. Like I don't want to start another company from scratch in the future. It's a lot of work to be honest. Like yeah. it, it really is like, this is my third one. I mean, we, we are really far along and, and I think that we have a lot of runway left. Um, but after this, like, I think my resources are going to be better dedicated to helping other entrepreneurs rather than like continuing to start things for myself. Um, just question for, I have two more questions. Just with what's happening currently, coronavirus and the economy, how do you believe e-commerce brands are handling this? Not only internally in your company, but how do you see the current situation of the world affecting e-com brands and overall what you do moving forward from a, you know, distribution, manufacturing, fulfillment perspective? Yeah, I mean, to be honest, like direct consumer brands right now are in the strongest position compared to any other like sector. Like if you look at retail as a whole, yeah. only brands that I know of that are up during this are direct consumer brands. Like you have a captive audience, people are sitting at home, they're bored, they're starting to do more research on products that maybe have just been like in the back of their head for the last two, three months. And now like, I know I'm literally still doing it. Like these are like, I'm just sitting at home all day, you know, working outside of that. It's like, I'm still sitting at home. So I bought a lot of products that like I've wanted to buy for the last couple months, but I like finally have enough time to do the research I needed to yeah. pull the trigger. Um, and so I think the most important thing and like what we're really focusing on and for any company really is to just be in a strong cash position. Um, I think any of the companies that were like just burning money to grow um, are going to go bankrupt. Um, I think you're going to see a lot of these like VC backed companies that have just been burning and burning and burning money with the hopes that like eventually they would start making money are going to go bankrupt. And I think we're going to see a shift of like profitability first rather than just like all these companies that, that are like, Oh, we grew to 300 million and we only spent 400 to get there, you know? Yeah. It just doesn't make sense. And so any of the companies that like ultimately like have supply chain dialed in, aren't overstocked on inventory, um, you know, don't have a ton of money invested um, or don't have a ton of money leveraged against that inventory or whatever. 
and like ultimately have a good balance sheet are going to be able to kind of make it through this. And the ones that don't probably aren't. So um, I, th I think it's really just something that people should focus on. It, even, I mean, we've been saying this for the last like two years, but there needs to be a bigger focus on profitability and not so much on the top line revenue. Um, and I think especially after this, you're going to see people more uh, doing that. Like you're even seeing it with the airlines and stuff like that. I mean, they do billions and billions of dollars in profit, but they're rebuying their stocks and, and not saving that money as a cash reserve. Yeah. And it's kind of crazy. It's like every, every U S citizen, you're like, Oh, you should have two or three months an emergency fund, right? Like as, as an individual, but then these companies don't have an emergency fund. And then, you know, something like this happens and it's like, shit, like I wish I had an emergency fund. So like my biggest advice is just have an emergency fund. I mean, you don't have to be sitting on millions of dollars, but like make sure you have enough money to last you a couple months at least to, okay. to where like you're not laying off staff. Um, you know, you can afford to kind of like cut back on things. Um, and then also with, with like with direct consumer brands, you're also in a position where like you can tone down your ad spend overnight. Like most of your, your costs that you have are going to be pretty low. Like you might have an office for overhead, you have employees, maybe you have a warehouse, but you're probably using a 3PL if you're a younger company. And so really like most of your costs can be shut off overnight. It's like, you don't have to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on advertising unless uh, you're getting the results that you're, you're wanting. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I would just say really like continue to focus on profitability. Love that. Last question to, to wrap it up. How has your daily routine habits changed with every, everything happening now? And what do you do? What do you recommend to people that you know, now have all this time, of, you know, they've been waiting to order that product or to start that company. Just how has, how has your habits changed throughout this crazy coronavirus pandemic time? Yeah. So I have this, uh, we actually talked about this the other day, but like you were telling me I need to make a TikTok for the brand and, <laughs> and for myself and stuff like that. But I have this like weird relationship with phones where uh, like I feel guilty if I'm on it for too long. Yeah. And so like now being captive at home, it's like, I'm trying to find things to fill my time without feeling it of just like aimlessly scrolling through social media or whatever. So I've been learning new things. Like I've never played around in the stock market before. So I've started learning like uh, just trading options and stuff like that. Uh, I learned how to do a Rubik's cube and then like I've been dialing it in like how to do a Rubik's cube in under two minutes. Um, <laughs> just like random things that I've always, it's like my list of things that like I've wanted to do for the last couple of years, but I haven't had the time to do. And I'm trying to use those to just fill my time. So I would just say like anything that like um, ultimately you've been like, oh, I'll do that later. Like do it now. You've got the time. You're, you're literally like stuck inside doing nothing else. And rather than like spending five hours a day on Instagram or wherever, just like start kind of like jotting down a list of things that you've been wanting to do and like start marking things off the list. And when you come out of this, like you're going to be way more productive than most people. Love it. Dylan, where can people learn more about Brewmate if they haven't already? Where can people stay up to date with everything you got going on moving forward? Uh, yeah, so my personal Instagram, uh, it's pretty much all I post, uh, whether it be my stories or just my actual posts. I post a lot about like where we're at as a company, uh, things that are going on, stuff like that. So, um, you know, on our brand page, we don't talk a whole lot about the, the nitty gritty details. It's more just about like new product releases and stuff. So if you want to learn more about the brand itself, you can go to our Instagram. Uh, it's brew, B-R-U dot mate. Um, and then my personal Instagram is at Dylan Jacob. Got it. Well, Dylan, thanks so much for coming on the show. Everyone, I'll make sure to link that down below. And yeah, man, keep killing it. Appreciate it, man.